It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The frogman is over. Looks like you've got what amounts to a legal mutiny on your hands. From top secret records, filmed with the cooperation of the Department of Defense, comes the thrilling story of these pin-footed, goggle-eyed, beach-blasting heroes. They fight like men from another world, but they've got Brooklyn, Texas, and Missouri written all over their hearts. You're a brave man, all of you are. You wouldn't be in this outfit. Nobody questions that. But your kind of bravery comes ten cents a dozen and isn't worth a hoot more when the chips are down. And the chips were down on that deal. What's up? We've been hit by a torpedo. Port side after. Take it easy, kid. We'll get you out of here. Know anything about torpedoes, sir? A little. Had a few days of this stuff during training. They called it the Kingdom Come type. Looks to me like you've got a rough decision to make. Oh, the big question is, do we take the chance the firing pin will stay put under the ship's vibration, or do we try and remove it, huh? But I think we ought to take a chance on removing the exploder mechanism. The odds are too big against assuming that fish isn't armed. 
Okay, I'm scared too. Collision, hard side aft. You have never seen anything like this adventure. Midnight submarine rendezvous with frogmen. The pickup line under fire. Underwater demolition. Below enemy territory. Fight to the finish where men never fought before. A legal mutiny, Andy. Have you ever thought about that, that there's a legal and an illegal mutiny? <laughs> you know, I actually really liked that line because it did remind me that, oh, you know what, I, I suppose there is this sense of basically, yeah, following the rules. We don't, we all would like to be assigned to a different unit. And, right, uh, right. Uh, yeah, I think I, that was a pretty interesting element here, you know? Yeah. Apparently, legal mutiny is not an actual legal term. I looked that up uh, because <laughs> mutiny, by its very definition, is illegal, right? It is an unlawful act. Uh, however, in some circumstances, say the boffins, uh, legal mutiny could be used colloquially or metaphorically to describe situations where subordinates legally challenge or resist their superiors. But, and, and that's what they're demonstrating in this film, like a, a resistance to the point where it's an administrative resistance. At no point did any of the soldiers not perform their duties. That's what would have made it. Uh, I think, more troublesome in the movie. They all jumped on board to actually do the fighting. Uh, so it was still a patriotic act. They just didn't like their CO. Right, and they were just resigning. And that's why I, I felt like it was just a, a fun, clever line. Me too, me too. But it really jumped out at me. Like, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I had to look it up. Does he know what he's talking about? I think he does. That's the verdict. I think he knows more than me. That was good old Gary Merrill uh, delivering that line, who is, uh, of course, the... Lieutenant commander of the Navy ship upon which the uh, the unit of UDT soldiers are traveling with. Underwater demolition team? Is that what that means? Yep, that's what that means. All right. So why are we talking about this movie? We are still in our 1952 Academy Award nominees for Best Cinematography, Black and White. This is the second of our five films we'll be discussing for this series, Cinematography by Norbert Brodeen. And uh, an interesting one in this lineup, because specifically the use of underwater uh, photography, you know, which was not as uh, prevalent at the time. Do you want to talk about the like the technology required to do the underwater photography first? That is the thing that stands out to me too. Like this is the the movie is fine. It is an easy watch. It it happened quickly, but the interesting part I think was was covering these guys doing it underwater. That is definitely why it ended up getting nominated for cinematography. It's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing because the cinematography, or, or I should say that the idea of filming underwater wasn't new. There had been uh, projects that had been filmed underwater before, but never really at the scope of this. It, it has always been um, like, I think there was a, a, you know, a short film in 1914 that was like the first time somebody did something like that. But it's, it's a tricky thing to try getting, you know, a camera in some sort of thing that is waterproof so that it can st film and still pick up a, a good image. In 1950. It's hard now. <laughs> yeah, it, right. Exactly. Uh, it, was, it was hard uh, through this whole process. And obviously, I think when I think about movies that were filmed underwater, I always end up first going to something like Thunderball, 
probably because it was much more popular and something that in in my head was like, oh, that's probably one of the first times. And I think when you watch that film, especially through today's eyes, and you see the big underwater action sequence, it's really slow paced. But at the time, it was probably just exciting to see people actually doing all of this fighting underwater and the way that they were really expanding what could be done. But that was like, oh, when was that? Like 66 or something? So like, you know, 15 years after this. And this was really put together because the these Navy people were out there doing this all through World War II. And so they wanted to find a way to kind of like capture this. And so it really took some playing around with the technology. And I, you know, I, I mentioned Cousteau, but again, he was also like, 10 years after this. So it's interesting to think about what they were really trying to do to capture these, these soldiers underwater doing on these, we have what, three missions. Is that how many missions were we go on? I believe so because the opening mission is the one where they're not in scuba suits. They're just like free swimming. Yeah. With not even snorkels, right? Not, no snorkels, just holding their breath and yeah, flippers and masks. And they're, it looks like that one, they're scouting the, the, you know, underwater boat. Right. I, I, boat traps. Is that what they are? Tank traps and boat traps to prevent, you know, breaching the beach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the next one is the one where they go out and actually uh, one of our main characters gets shot during a prank, the prank heard around the world. And it's still good joke. He lived good joke. And then the third <laughs> one is the one is the big one where they have to go, you know, destroy the submarine base. So those I think those are the big three. And and the that third one is the only one where we have actual other other team frogmen uh, who are also underwater. And that's when they go into a knife on knife uh, fight. Well, and that's also the interestingly enough, the one action sequence underwater in this film where they were kind of stepping beyond how the frogmen were actually working in World War II because in that particular fight you know they're they're sneaking into this Japanese submarine pen and uh planting bombs to blow the whole place up but they were using scuba gear and the scuba gear really wasn't uh, integrated into their work until after World War II. So in the scope of what they were doing, I, I think that the, the writers decided to do something a little more fantastical and thrilling for the film, knowing that after World War II, this is exactly how the frogmen would be behaving in the scope of like what we talked about in our member pre-show chat working with the military on films, it may not have been real for World War II, but for people who were watching this movie and getting excited about the possibility of joining and doing something cool like this, you're seeing like the cutting edge stuff that they were doing at the time the film was released. Yeah, right. And and who are the who are the frogmen now? Seals? Is that what we're talking about? Right. The underwater uh, underwater demolition team. They were frogmen. They were predecessors to the seals. I didn't look to see what the date was of that shift. I guess I can scan it real quick and see if I can figure out when they actually became the Navy Seals. But yeah, they were the they were really the forerunner for it. Amphibious warfare. That was kind of the whole point of it. You know. Yeah. Right. Right. The the other there are some other pieces of the and I, we're gonna I'm gonna keep talking about the underwater stuff and the and the actual frogmen stuff because the story stuff is 
it was we'll we'll cover that. But one of the the things that stands out the most to me, and I'm glad they spent so much time, every single mission, they really give us a healthy dose of how these guys get into the water and how they get picked up again. And it was mind-blowing. Like, who in that chain would you like to be? Would you like to be one of the guys in the water (laughs) getting yanked out of it? Or do you want to be the yanker, the guy who's freehanding a rope and just waiting for this 180-pound guy to grab it at, you know, 20 knots? I don't know what a knot is. But fast, these fast boats picking up guys out of the water. I was blown away every time. I could have watched an hour and 30 minutes of just that, like different scenarios of getting in and out of the water. Well, that was one sequence where, as we were watching, the way that they would roll off the side of the boat into <laughs> the little, the, um, the lifeboat that will, you know, for lack of proper term, whatever it was that they were sitting in on the side, and they would roll off onto the lifeboat, and then they would, once they were signaled, they would roll off that. And I was like, well, it's no wonder they were called frogmen, because their positioning always makes them look like the little frog getting ready to leap, you know? And so they always had this kind of position. And I thought that was such a fascinating reality of how these teams were doing that. And yeah, and to your point, like the whole idea of getting back onto the boat and this system. I mean, it it made so much more sense when I was watching it. I'm like, oh, of course, you know, you don't have all the guys clumped together because that's more dangerous for them as a potential target, you know, and, uh, and you devise this system. So you don't have to stop the boat every time to pick them up. It's just like this speed, um, you know, drop off and pick up that, it was so effective. And I'm like, that was just, it was a genius way to do that. I just, it was, to your point, it was a thrill to just kind of watch the process of that each time. I know. It just, it was exhilarating. And especially the wounded guys. Like, I know that you got shot. I know they winged you, but you're still going to need to grab onto this, <laughs> this rope coming by your head at 25 miles an hour. I thought that was so good. Well, they did stop for the guy who was shot. Yeah, I guess that's right. A bunch of the, guys the one guy in, like but... some yeah jumped out and helped him get yeah. up and stuff. Right, right. But nobody helped the captain who had the sliced leg. Of course, he didn't tell anybody his leg was sliced. Right, open. and the commander. I mean, that's right. Because he was a re- he was a real man, and you know he was a real man because there are no women in this movie to even compare him to. <laughs> they were all written out. Yeah. Right. There are no women in this movie. So on that point, it doesn't age that well. But what I, I love is the, the term they use is that they felt like the filming environment would be too riotous for women. <laughs> too riotous. <laughs> no girls allowed on in this filmmaking treehouse. Yeah. Um, I don't think it looked great. I don't think it looked great, the movie. Uh, the black and white, it didn't look great. And it might have been uh, transfer, age, whatever. But I didn't feel like there was a lot of detail in the blacks. The blacks just got lost. There wasn't a lot of... of contrast in a lot of shots i i felt like this is one of those black and white movies that hasn't aged well in the can do you get that same feeling uh, i didn't really think that i just it, it's definitely an older film that I, I just don't think it had 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 as strong a transfer and so like i i don't even see that it's been released on blu-ray so it likely has never had like any sort of uh restoration it certainly is a film that is still popular because of the military angle of the film but i i don't think that uh from everything that i can tell it's never actually had a restoration so we're still watching fairly old transfers that just end up having a muddier look just feels like it 
right? It feels like it. And I don't know that it's a movie that necessarily deserves to have that kind of attention paid to it. I mean, what? okay, so we've talked a lot about the technical stuff. What did you think of the film? I enjoyed it. I thought it was an interesting, it was a fun film. I didn't love it. It's not like an overly creative story. Generally, the story, Richard Widmark is a new commander assigned to this UDT team. They lost their previous commander, and so... As often happens, they hold a resentment, kind of a grudge with the new person just for the simple fact that you're not the old person and you don't act the way the old person did. He was the best and your rules are different than their rules, that whole thing. And so it's it's really this situation where he's trying to get them to uh, do things and handles things in ways that they're not used to. There's a lot of drama between various crew members, but, you know, consistently he is proving himself. This is, again, the commander proving himself to be worthy of their uh, respect, even if they don't like him. And by the end, they do respect him. Well, we saw that coming around the corner. (laughs) maybe around the block (laughs) it was a pretty uh standard by the book script but you know i did feel they developed it well enough where it was very entertaining it was it never lagged fun characters uh i enjoyed the actors in the role richard widmark was great as, as this lieutenant commander who uh, was struggling trying to like run things the way he always runs things, which is a little gruffer and harsher than how their previous commander had. You've got Gary Merrill, who's the lieutenant commander of the boat that they're on, and the way that he kind of reacts to everything that Widmark is doing is just okay. It's yeah, it's it's <laughs> your decision, whatever you want to do. I had such fun watching him. And then Dana Andrews, who we just talked about in our last series in uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, he's the the chief of the UDT team. And, you know, I think he works well as kind of this this person who is dancing the line between being a very competent frogman, like he, he does his job and he does it well, but also as, you know, as his commander points out, you're also behaving kind of like a child and you're doing these things like, you know, he and Pappy, this other UDT crewman that he's with, they want to go plant this flag on the beach. And, you know, Chief Flanagan kind of acknowledges, ah, you know, maybe we should drop it, but then does it anyway. And then, of course, Pappy gets shot in the back and injured. And there's this element that, you know, uh, Widmark says, like, you know, you... You have the abilities, but you're acting immaturely and you need to kind of get rid of that. And it's, you know, I just, I liked the conflict between these characters. Like they, they wrote some good characters for conflict and, and uh, it was believable. I enjoyed the way that these actors portrayed it. And I bought into all of the, uh, the drama that was going on. I had a greater affinity with our, our new commanding officer, right? Like that, that mentality of a little bit more by the book for a team that has to be so precise. I felt like it was interesting that the movie seemed to be asking for greater sensitivity in this man's military when it felt like the what was really needed was what we got in our commanding officer. We didn't need him to soften up. We needed his crew not to play jokes in an operation. And and I know that's like, I, I'm obviously applying my sort of transparency on top of this, but it just felt strange to me as much as I agree with you that that 
as presented, I believed the character interactions and I enjoyed all their performances. I just thought it was an interesting ideology of the movie that it was like, you know, we're going to show as a real mark against him that he made what I saw as the right choice and not going back and picking up the, the guy in the boat, that there was already a rescue boat going. He was there to save the rest of his crew on his boat. Don't go back and get that guy because that guy's going to be gotten already. And everybody held such a grudge, right? I, I, I was in camp. You got to remember the funeral rites. Like that was a miss. Like that was, that was bad news. But, <laughs> but I do think like when he makes those calls that a, a commander would make, I thought it was interesting that the movie seemed to want me to not like him for that did you feel that same way it was an interesting uh, essence of his character because i think there are things that we are as the audience designed to agree with him in some of the decisions that he's making and get kind of upset at his crew because they're holding a grudge against him again not for any valid reason other than the fact that that's not how their old commander would have done it, you know? And it's like, oh, he would have let us get away with all this sort of stuff. And and so they're going to hold a grudge, even though I think Flanagan knows that Commander Lawrence is right. I just think that he's just mad because we were all fine. We would have been fine. You know, like it's that whole, that attitude. And so, um, but I, I, and that's what I think was interesting and smart about the script is that they give us those sides of Commander Lawrence that are both uh, where we can see his point of view, but also the stuff where we can see the crew's point of view, like the funeral rites. And so I just, I think that they were smartly um, walking the line of both sides of that. I guess so. I guess so. I never once questioned Widmark, right? I never once questioned his authenticity, his choices. Like he was, I was in camp Widmark the whole time. When I saw him get straight, scraped by the coral and you get the feeling that the the crew starts like really talking at, about him behind his back, that he's he's like scared to go on a mission. Uh, I was uh, like, it's, it's rare that I am... <laughs> I'm anti-labor in movies. <laughs> like, like I was anti-labor here. You guys need to get in gear. This guy is doing what's what he thinks is best for his unit. And I found that interesting um, because I, I just thought his like he he was trying to do what was right and what he thought was right. And it, it happens to align with what I thought was right. Well, except, as you said, the, the funeral. Yeah. Like that was uh, that's what I'm saying. Like they're giving us both sides. Like, oh, Spectrum, I agree yeah. with you. I'm definitely agreeing with him. Like I'm, I'm in his camp for the bulk of this, but there are those decisions he makes, like not doing anything about the funeral rites that really it takes Gary Merrill's character to say, you know, you probably should do something, say something at least. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. What would you give to watch a John Lawrence, Pete Vincent, right? With Mark and Merrill, odd couple movie on a submarine. <laughs> I would watch those guys as roommates all day long. Yeah. They so were great. Cute. It'd They're be great. adorable. We never got to see them play their cribbage game, but I'm sure yeah. it was a thrill. Right, right, right. <sighs> what, are the, what other big moments? Any other big moments in here that really, you feel like, define the story? I think this film does a good job in setting both of our characters up. Essentially, Lawrence is our protagonist. Flanagan's our antagonist because the story is more about their relationship than it is about, you know, an antagonist being the Japanese who they are fighting against in this particular, uh, in these 
uh, events. The Japanese certainly come into play, and we see them underwater in that last fight, which is fantastic. But really, it's it's really the conflict between those those two characters. And to that end, I think that there were a few elements that I think worked really well to show us who Lawrence is, who Flanagan is, how this how these um, this pair works uh, together and in opposition. And I think one of the scenes that stands out to me is when the ship gets torpedoed, and the torpedo is a dud, but it's sticking into the medical room where Pappy is, you know, all strapped up because he was shot in the back and, and is, uh, can't move. They can't get him out of there. And so they have to figure out how to get rid of this torpedo and patch the ship up while this room is flooding. And and watching Commander Lawrence very selflessly going down there, figuring out how I can disarm this uh, torpedo so that it doesn't accidentally go off and help the soldier who's here. And then Flanagan is the one who's like volunteers to come and stand guard. But really it's because Pappy is there. And I, I, I loved the whole trying to disarm the torpedo sequence. But then my favorite part of the whole thing is when Lawrence says, so did they assign you here? And he's like, no, I volunteered. And he, and commander Lawrence thinks that he volunteered to be there to help him out. But he's just like, well, Pappy would have done the same for me. And just watching Wid- Widmark's face as he's reading that and acknowledging, oh, of course. Yeah. I should have seen that one coming. Yeah. But just like those little moments of these character interactions, I think work really well in context of giving us a sense of who these characters are, how they interact and all of that. I did like that sequence because it, it ramped up the intensity in a way that the, as a real peak, in the movie where, because as you said, the underwater stuff is pretty slow paced, even when they're knife fighting at the end. It's fair to maybe double speed it. <laughs> it's pretty slow. But this sequence is really, really threatening because, you know, as you say, you can't open that door and the water is coming right up to the gurney where, where our man um, Pappy is lying and can't be moved. And so... Every time we have Lawrence like jamming that screwdriver into the nose of that torpedo. And let's not forget, he asks like, you want, <laughs> there's an exchange between Pete and John. And he says like, do you have anybody on board who can disarm a torpedo? Because I'll take a crack at it if you don't have anybody better. It's like the <laughs> <Yeah>. lowest standard. <laughs> right. The I'll take a crack at it, I guess, standard, which I thought was really incredible. And then the torpedo keeps nosing around. Like every time he jams his, his screwdriver in the head of it, it like keeps shaking. And so the the threat, like the ticking clock of the room filling with water was damn threatening. Like it was, I, I thought that was really great. I wish there were more moments like that in, in the movie because energetically uh, it was, it's a real high point. And then, you know, they finally get the, the plate off so that they can disarm it. And then he's got to jam that, uh, that tongue depressor in between the, the pin and the trigger or whatever the, <laughs> the right. torpedo parts are called. And um, what's inside every torpedo is effectively a mousetrap. I don't know if you knew that. Right, like, ex- it's right. just a mousetrap. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it, it's like, and I don't know how to have read it other than he gets the, the tongue depressor in there just as the pin snaps and it and it stops it from hitting the the plate i couldn't tell if they intended to do that or if that was just pure luck that they happened to get the thing in there just before it went off like i wasn't sure if that was part of the plan to like well we'll shut this so that it holds in place but either way i'm like it was one of those few sorts of moments 
Like it was just, it was great to see the way that that whole thing played out. It just, it carried that tension. I do too. I, I think it really was great. And I, I do think it was because it was the proximity to my eye it was the proximity of the thing that triggered the spring to yeah. trap down. Like it, it would not have, have been down there had it not been artificially jostled. And then that's what they were most scared of was artificially jostling it and triggering it. And so yeah, they just right, happened exactly. to be the right place. Yeah. It was also, you know, just in, in the scope of character building, I think it was a very valuable scene to have because, you know, again, the lieutenant commander in military ranks, you have this sense of the people in the higher up positions generally try to not uh, kind of like get to know their subordinates on a personal scale. They, they try to keep that wall between them. And this was a moment where I can only imagine for Flanagan to actually have his lieutenant commander say, you know, I got to say, I'm a little afraid right now. And, you know, just like acknowledging like this scares the hell out of me. Uh, I'm pretty nervous that I have to go through this process. And then, of course, he acknowledges moments later, you know, when his hand is shaking, he's like, yeah, I'm a little scared, too. It's like that sort of character moment that you have with these characters, I think, really allowed for this sense of acknowledgement that, you know, we're both human and you know, we're living through the situation the best we can. And it's not a turning point for their friendship or for their relationship to kind of become a friendship and a sign of respect, but it is a catalyst to start moving us in the, that direction of the rest of the film. So I, it's just an incredibly strong centerpiece uh, to the film to watch things as they slowly start shifting. Maybe I've told you about my buddy who's a, he's a ranger and uh, he teaches halo jumping for the army, uh, high altitude, low open jumping. And he's been dropped into places all over the world in Africa and Middle East. And he's now a teacher in Colorado Springs. And I've talked to him about fear before in, in these kinds of situations. And his story to me, I thought was really interesting that the things like we see here, and I haven't asked him specifically about disarming a torpedo, but he said the things that we see in action are not scary. By the time you're trained for them, those things aren't scary because largely, if something goes wrong, you're not going to know it. You're going to just be dead. And once you accept that, then everything else becomes kind of second nature. The things that are scary is when a, a, he speaks of a briefing that has stuck with him for years. He was being dropped into some place in Africa, and the briefing included, if you get bit by one of these five types of snakes, you we have no antidote for them, so don't get bit by those things. He said those are the scary things because those are the things that you're, are the anticipatory things. They give you enough time to think about them going wrong, and you're not <laughs> trained to deal with snakes. <laughs> it's not a thing that that, that this man's army spends a lot of time thinking about. And so I, th I thought that was really interesting. And it made me think, like, it's nice to see this sort of vulnerability in this scene, but it made me think about it as a concept. Like, this is not a thing these guys specifically, or better yet, ask the question, would this have been a thing these guys specifically had been trained to do? They were underwater demolitions teams. Like, is there any realm that we would think that they should be more comfortable dealing with this particular explosive because that's in their realm or was it just because they're used to doing c4 and blowing stuff up old school yeah i mean that's an interesting question and i suppose in the scope of a demolition team they probably have more experience dealing with bombs and explosives than a lot of the other crew do but at the same time i think there's a big difference between a torpedo 
and the sorts of uh, demolition explosives that they typically are using. Like, you know, that it's, it's a very different type. But at least they have an understanding of what it takes. Like, he was able to open up a torpedo and knew what he needed to do in there, even <laughs> right, if it wasn't right. his realm. Whereas, you know, if some other Navy men had to open up a torpedo, he'd probably like, your guess is as good as mine. Is there a red wire to yeah. cut somewhere? Because that would yeah. be my first question. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> would you have known to ask for a screwdriver and a tongue depressor? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's on the list. So anyway, oh, I, just all things to just sort of think about. But I think overall, this movie's sort of historical representation of war. That's a first for this movie. This is the first movie that really, you know, showcased this particular type of unit in the war. And they make a big deal on the boat in the beginning, right? There's that huge brawl that sort of escalates everything. But when the guys stand up and are like, you know, there are X many million men on the, uh, you know, in the army and there are a thousand of us. Right. And that sort of ego to set the stage for the difference between these two teams, I think, is was really great. Like that was that was a great way to to table set for the rest of this movie. I think that the significance of their participation is not to be understated. And also the whole mentality that all all soldiers are equal from our commanding officer uh, is uh, was was noted. Like, I thought that was a, a great. A, a great bit of craftsmanship. Yeah, very much so. Just watching the way that it would work. And just, you know, it was interesting for me to look at how the Navy was working anyway. Like, the fact that they are a unit that goes from ship to ship to ship to submarine, whatever it is, wherever the mission is required. Like, they're not always with the people on this particular vessel, you know, that Lieutenant Commander Vincent is running. And so, yeah, you're going to have these sorts of conflicts between these different troops as they hop onto this boat. And then toward the end of the film, we see them hop onto a submarine because they got to go do this other mission. And so it was just interesting to kind of see the way that they would do that. And you can understand why there is kind of these attitudes with these different military groups. Even to this day, you know, all the military groups are always, they have certain things to say with each other as far as like, who's the best and everything. And I thought this was actually a funny thing you know we had this scene with the sign how they plant they snuck onto the beach and planted this sign apparently it is quite the tradition in fact if you go to the underwater demolition team wikipedia page there's a photo in Da Nang, 1965, where they still have the tradition of sneaking onto the beach and putting a sign up, but and it says "Welcome, U.S. Marines, UDT 12." <laughs> so clearly, it's a thing that they love to do to poke at the Marines, who always see say, you know, we're first on the beach and everything. Which was Flanagan's exact point, and I was I in that respect, like that the movie as makes us ask these questions about teamwork and leadership in the form of what risks should be undertaken in the face of team unity. Is it worth getting shot? Is it worth losing your life to make this kind of a joke? And the movie says yes. The movie says, yes, this is actually a, a thing that's worth doing. And I think a little uh, dalliance with rebellion uh, in these sorts of circumstances keeps people feeling alive in a circumstance where, um, you know, death is around the corner. Uh, you know, in the spirit of, you know, what's left anyway, let's go ahead and, and prank. At the same time, though, that is an instance where I think it's a, it's a situation where you can always see it from both points of view. 
and, and both of them feel like I can see the validity to Lieutenant Commander Lawrence's point of view. Also, the fact that you're putting yourself at risk, you know, your partner got shot, that's not being smart. And in the scope of thinking about the best way to, to be smart on these missions, you know, you're not showing us that you can become a leader. And and so I think that it's an interesting element where it, it's, we're playing with both sides, but it's definitely a gray area. And I think that's the trick because, um, like, if I were half my age, I definitely would have been on Team Flanagan for this whole movie. But I, I feel like I'm I'm not half my age. I'm definitely Team Lawrence because <laughs> I'm exactly twice that age, and and I <laughs> I feel like just you know you you need to um, I I feel like Flanagan made the better co- better points right. He made the better points about keeping keeping men alive. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Two other things that I wanted to bring up. Uh, or three other things. One, um, just going back to a point I was talking about earlier, the Frogmen, they were created in World War II. Around 1941 is when they really started. The Navy actually started expanding this, uh, the Frogmen program, the UDTs, in the mid-50s, so shortly after this. And this movie certainly contributed to the popularity and people wanting to be part of this. They started shifting it until it became the SEALs in 62. So, the Navy SEALs, they, they kind of continued developing the program, and it officially, like, SEAL Team 1 was officially established in January 1962. Did you look up on the, the NavySEALs.com website all the different numbers? Because I thought this was really interesting. Do you know how they're structured? As far as, like, just the team number, or is there a different number you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Because, you know, then there's a, the whole thing with SEAL Team 6, right? SEAL Team 6 was the big Middle East team. But I didn't know that the numbers coordinated with their environments and and theater. So, like, SEAL Team 1 ended up Western Pacific, and their environment was jungle, desert, and urban. Uh, SEAL Team 3 was Middle East, desert, and urban. SEAL Team 5, their geographic responsibility was Korea. Arctic, desert, and urban environments. So they were all sort of trained around these specific environments where they would be deployed. And I think that that's really interesting. There are now 22 SEAL teams. Uh, What an incredible sort of (laughs) frame of expertise. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, and the UDT teams on top of that, like they went up to at least into their 20s. Uh, In 1969, there was UDT 22. They were serving in Vietnam. But this film specifically is looking at UDT 4, which, uh, you know, received three commendations for Guam, uh, Leyte and Okinawa. So um, very much kind of like the Japanese, the the Pacific arena uh, for the for this one. What do you think of this? 22, their geographic responsibility is worldwide, and their environment is riverine. Wow. I've never heard that word before. It sounds like a type of related to, related to, (laughs) we need to get sponsorship for the uncreated, (laughs) uh, never created gum. Relating to or situated on a river or riverbank, riparian, colon, a riverine village. Yeah, interesting. They just do rivers. Oh, I guess that makes sense for Vietnam, right? Yeah, right, totally. But worldwide rivers, that's their, they could show up on the Willamette right here. (laughs) We might see, maybe they're here right now. We wouldn't know because they're Navy SEALs. You wouldn't know, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway. Going back to the fantastic partnership that the filmmakers had with the Navy to put this film together, 
uh, one of my favorite features in the film to go, so that's how they do that, is the fantastic <laughs> rope line that they have from boat to boat to yes. uh, to get one person from one ship over to the other on a little swinging chair that they have with a pulley system. Like, that was so fantastic, watching Richard Widmark go from one boat over to the other to talk to the other uh, captain. <laughs> that was awesome. That was one of my favorite bits. And, the, you know, not... Uh, not worth it. <laughs> There's a lot of guys' hands that your life happens to be in at that point. I thought that was wonderful. It was so fun. Another note, the music. I loved how toward the end of the film in particular, as they were jumping into their missions, how the composer, uh, who was um, Cyril Mockridge, started integrating anchors away into the score. And I was like, that was a great way to kind of you know, tie us into the military, but using it in a way where it was fairly dramatic and uh, it worked, worked quite well. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought it was, it was lovely. I mean, the movie overall is, you know, it, it, it was a, a fun movie. I don't know how many times I'm going to go back to it. Maybe if there is a, if it ever gets a restoration, I'd like to see it again, just to see if I can understand the visuals. But that brings us to why we're talking about it today in terms of its technical prowess did you see anything in terms of its black and white cinematography that that screams this movie needs to be above others well and you know i think this goes to technical achievements more than actual like creative compositions like i mean last week we talked about death of a salesman which is really using a lot of like noir like contrasty shadowy you know shots with uh interesting angles uh changing like lenses and stuff like some really interesting kind of subjective camera use that we have in that film this film i think likely ended up getting its nomination because of the amount of work that they went through in order to capture the underwater uh, photography that they did throughout this film. That was a huge achievement to like, this was the first Hollywood film where they're really doing that. And so the stuff on the ship is pretty standard. Like there, there wasn't anything that stood out to me as um, like spectacular, like deserving of a cinematography award. I think the only reason that it ended up in that, award category is because of the extensive underwater photography, which was, you know, quite a breakthrough at the time. And we can't ignore that. Like from today's eyes, it doesn't seem that exciting, especially when you have people like James Cameron doing insane underwater work these days. But at the time in early 1950s, when you saw something like this, it's like this was kind of the first time you were able to really watch something like a, like a Hollywood movie with actors underwater in a in a situation and I think that was uh, a pretty exciting and and to to come up with the tools that they needed in order to make that happen I would imagine that that is why it's in this category. Yeah. Any other hot items? Robert Wagner apparently is in here somewhere. Um I Did you find did you, did you find him? I did not. Apparently, it is uh, it just a, like, he's in a background somewhere. They were starting to develop him as an actor. He has a line. He says, like, yes, sir, or something like that. That was about it, and I totally missed it. But it's it's funny. Like, Jack Warden has a small part right at the very beginning of the film, which was, I, he, I easily recognized him. But, yeah, I, I never saw Robert Wagner. It's just fun to see, like, these people getting starts in films like this. Yeah. What, what do you think of old uh, Lloyd Bacon, our fair director? I think that there's um, a sense of him as a filmmaker who 
I don't know. I think of more for, I, I guess I picture him as just a very much Hollywood sort of filmmaker who would, who was making things like 42nd street and footlight parade. Like those are the sorts of, of films that I, I picture with Lloyd Bacon. And uh, yeah. And so I, I guess I, I don't know. I don't think I know a whole lot of his work, but it's, it is kind of fun to see him just seeing what he can do. I, I feel like he's probably a director who is a fairly safe Hollywood filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, 130 credits, like the guy was churning them out. And I have put on a letterbox, right? I'm looking at his his credits and saying, fade the watched films. And my goodness, there are not very many of them. I don't think I have a good sense of uh, what continuity for Lloyd Bacon would look like for me at this point. He's sort of new to me, but I, you know, I, I have seen 42nd Street. You know, there, there are a couple in here, but I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you Lloyd Bacon directed them. I think Newt Rockney, All American, is mm-hmm. probably one of his more uh, recognized films. But I, I wonder if that's because of him or more Ronald Reagan. You know, like I think of that film, I think of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I, I don't think from this movie, I'm real intrigued to just jump on a, a Lloyd Bacon series. I don't think I'm there yet. I, I don't think so, but he's. It was a very easy film to watch. Like I, I didn't feel like it dragged. It just kind of moved quickly. It was you know breezy, ninety six minutes, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was um, you know well crafted. Yeah, and especially dealing with the the navy side of things, dealing with the underwater side of things. I think there was a lot of that complexity that was pulled off very well. Me too. All right. Well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Ian Post, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusty's taking trips to Europe? 
We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Sequels? Andy, is there a Frogman 2? The Frogs Men? There almost was, believe it or not. No. Uh, the producer wrote a story called Frogmen in Korea that was intended to follow this up, but it ended up falling apart. There was a, a TV remake of this called Deep Water in 1957. James Whitmore was in that as Flanagan with Ralph Meeker and Richard Arlen. But that was kind of it. Uh, you know, in the scope of other stories featuring the UDT, there was another film uh, called Underwater Warrior in 1958, directed by Andrew Martin. That one took place between World War II and the Korean War. I, I don't know if I've seen other specific UDT-focused things, but obviously SEALs have certainly, uh, the Navy SEALs have, have been in films. Yes, for sure. For sure. And in, in terms of awards, this was a real sweeper, category sweeper, right? <laughs> I mean, so many nominations. This film, uh, I, I, you know, to be fair, I don't think that this film is the sort to be an award film. It's probably designed to be an audience pleaser more than anything. The fact that it ended up getting two nominations, I think, probably was a thrill for the filmmakers. Again, the reason we're here, it did get nominated at the Oscars for black and white cinematography, but it lost to A Place in the Sun, which we'll be talking about next week. It also, interestingly, was nominated for Best Writing Motion Picture Story, that always, uh, you know, confusing category that um, started it from the beginning of the Oscars all the way up until just a few years after this. 1956 is when they dropped this award. That was essentially for treatments like this person wrote a great treatment and then somebody else came in and wrote a great script from it it was nominated for best writing motion picture story oscar millard is the one who wrote that but that went to seven days to noon i haven't seen that one have you seen that i have not seen that nope nope that's new to me when a scientist threatens to detonate a powerful bomb in the heart of london scotland yard has just seven days to find him before it is too late is it seven and a half days? I mean, it is noon. <laughs> anyway, how did it do at the uh, box office, Andy? I know you released the carrier pigeons and you were able to find the scraps of spreadsheets hand penciled to give you a sense of just how much money this movie made. Bacon's notes. Bacon's <laughs> notes. <laughs> No, alas, uh, if I thought Death of a Salesman was hard, I should have should not have expected anything more for this much more obscure title. I have no idea what the budget was for this one. It premiered May 24th, 1951 in Little Creek, Virginia, and then it opened June 29th, 1951. This went on to earn $2.1 million domestically or $24.5 million in today's dollars. That is more than Death of a Salesman did, so maybe this wasn't a box office flop. In fact, from everything I've read, this was very popular at the box office. Um, again, probably because it's a, kind of an adventure movie. Um, still, it didn't end up at the top 10 of the year. I know that much. So I'll just go with that. Somewhere in between. 
Well, I think that's probably exactly right. This has a high burn, but very short. You know, I imagine it being very interesting for my dad when he was a kid. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this would have been the movie to go to the theater for and maybe multiple times and then not think about all that often. Well, and it's interesting because this is the sort of film, you know, as we talked about in our pre-show chat, kind of those films that um, the military participated in or cooperated like with Hollywood to make the films this was a popular film like they said there was a rise in people wanting to join because of this film so I, I think it's it's very much that sort of action film that you know people probably get excited about like yeah I can't wait to go do that yeah well I liked it well enough yeah it's not a five star but I liked it well enough I'm glad we talked about it yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting look into film history just because of the underwater photography at the time. But just, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's fun to see. I mean, I, I'll always, I'll always watch Rich, Richard Widmark on screen. He's such an easy watch. I love, love him as an actor. And so uh, it's fun to check this one off his list. I think so, too. All right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess, but only too human when he held her in his arms. We'll think of something somehow, whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together. Just the two of us. Montgomery Clift, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. I've been wanting to do that for such a long time. So did I. Will we see each other again like this? It's up to you. You've got to be careful. One love grew in the shadows of the night, sealed by a secret they could share with no one. The other love flamed in the bright light of gaiety and laughter, a need that drove him with all the recklessness of youth itself, a dream that was built on deception. You lied to me, George, for the last time. Now I want you to come and get me. Yes, uh, I'll come down in the morning. And if you're not here in half an hour, I'll come where you are. I'll tell them everything, George, I mean it. You too will know the fears, the desperation that claimed him as fate weaves the strange fabric of his life. For A Place in the Sun is a story that will forever hold a place among your greatest dramatic memories. Is your name George Eastman? Yes. You're under arrest. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. 
Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Letterbox, Andy, you know it's the time where we rob stars from future Pete and Andy and give them to today's films. <laughs> how'd, you, uh, how'd you end up rating <laughs> this movie on our favorite Letterboxd? This was a fun film, as we said. It's not anything new or exciting. Uh, the underwater stuff was great. Uh, it was an easy watch. I still liked it. I'm going to say three stars and a heart. I am too, right across the bow so to speak. I, it was an easy watch. Again, I'm not it, I'm not going to race back to see it unless it gets a nice uh, restoration, and I don't see that coming. Hey, you never know. Truth. All right. Well, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxed to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about the Frogmen? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Uh, everybody agrees with us. It's a three-star movie. The average is, speaks <laughs> volumes. Uh, I, yes, I, ha- I have two, but they're very short. And okay, I have okay. one, and it's very short as well. Okay, uh, let's sandwich them. I'll do it first, then you go, Ooh. and then I'll I'll cap it. Okay, <laughs> number one, this is two and a half from Michael. I like the part with the coral poisoning, <laughs> which is true. I was, I, ow, coral, and then a series of episodic events happening to a team of World War II frogmen that never actually managed to convince me it was taking place during a war, which I think is an astute observation from Michael. It goes on, but he has more stuff, but we pretty much talked about that, so I won't belabor that. That's my first one. What's yours? I have just a, a three-star by Travis Thomas who says, boys splashing around for the war. <laughs> <laughs> I should let you go last. But my third, my second one has actually recommendations, uh, and they're movies that I immediately want to put on my watch list. Pretty solid, says Chris, uh, but if you want military leader Widmark, Take the High Ground is better, and if you want submarine Widmark, Helen High Water is way better. Two movies to jump on that list. Take the high ground, Richard Richard Brooks, um, and Helen High Water. 
is one that I actually have the soundtrack for that. I, I have but not you've never seen the movie? Seen it. <laughs> I have not seen it. Samuel Fuller. I mean, yeah, it's hard to argue Samuel Fuller, Richard Brooks as two filmmakers uh, telling big war stories. Both films I've heard um, good things about, but I'll have to add those to my watch list as well. I think it would be fun to do a list of, uh, to do a series of movies that are like, like explain like this submarine Widmark, military leader Widmark. Like, <laughs> you know, if you want attorney Tom Cruise, or if you want to, uh, pilot Tom Cruise, or if you want astronaut Tom Cruise, right? That's a good way to build, I think, a list. I, I think I'd be excited about that. Yeah. Or psycho, psycho Widmark with psycho uh, Widmark. Night in the City. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. There you go. Or no, Kiss, is it Kiss of Death is the, is the one where he pushes the lady in the wheelchair. Oh, he's just he's, he's fantastic the best. He is the was best. he also in um uh the swarm there's another like he's the he's the general in that too so right another that. military leader would mark but so many well, i don't know how i would how i would differentiate that what would the word be against the swarm <laughs> Beastung Woodmark. Beastung Woodmark. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. cowboy oh. Woodmark. We got to throw warlock on there for sure. God, that's a good one. Oh, yeah. all right. Well, thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.